Hello and welcome to Minta Dialogue, episode number 226. Today is Sunday the 12th of March 2017 and this interview is with Cheryl Hudson who is general counsel to many companies in the music industry, digital media and publishing. She provides global brand strategy and trademark protection for such companies. Cheryl is an author and a speaker and she's also the founder of BrandAid, providing and curating advice from experts on topics of global brand strategy and trademark protection trademark litigation, amongst other things. In this conversation, Cheryl and I discuss the importance of brand in today's marketplace, some of the keys to building a brand and creating the necessary trust behind that brand, and how it's different creating brands for entrepreneurs versus when you're in big business. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. So, Cheryl Hodgson, I'm so glad to have you on board. Um, you're in California. We've connected through our mutual friend, Cliff Fluitt, who was also a feature on my podcast a few years ago. So, Cheryl, tell us who you are and what's your mindset. Oh, I love that question about the mindset. Well, who I am, I hope I'm a member of the human race this morning. Go for it. I'm happy to be here, by the way. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, I am an attorney. That's my day job, has been for many years. And uh, I started out representing attorney, uh, excuse me, representing authors, publishers, tech companies, recording artists, and entrepreneurs. Um, and I've done that for many years. And I actually have found, met you because I had heard the podcast you did with Cliff. There you go. I've done some work with Cliff and his firm. He represents some of my clients here in the States, mm-hmm. from here in the States. Um, so, uh, and my mindset I'd say uh, I thought about that question in advance. My mindset is constantly seeking to grow and evolve. Um, I'm always about learning to stay focused on my goals and visions. That means managing my mind to a solution and staying focused on the vision and the goals, Mm -hmm. not the obstacles. Mm. Um, Because that's, I think I've grown into an entrepreneurial mindset or I aspire to have an entrepreneurial mindset. So Cheryl, in these years of working with entrepreneurs and making trademarks and brands, how would you describe the change that has happened over the last 20 years? Uh, I'd say it's been um, disruptive. And that's to coin the term. It's uh, almost an everyday word now, but uh, we talk, think in terms of industries being disrupted, but the world of um, brands and communicating messaging has also been disrupted because 20 years ago, uh, and many, many today still are, surprisingly, uh, companies with products and services are, are attempting to communicate with their customers through the old-fashioned traditional methods of snail mail and you know, direct marketing and, you know, but let's face it, that's not where, that's not what's going on now. And, and when brands began going online or, or individuals for that matter, suddenly, um, 
everything was everywhere in all time, real time. So it's not a managed message. It's 24 hours anytime on the web. So how do you, how do you describe, well, how, how has that impacted the importance of the brand? Has it made it more or less important in your mind? It's actually made it much more. And I, and I'll tell you what I think is interesting about your question is that when I think the internet first started, I started to see a shift in what was happening with my own clients that they were excited about. And all of us were excited about using the internet but what first came out was this whole notion. A lot of the early internet marketers got obsessed with making money off of domain names. And people were registering domain names. Remember, it's like, oh, you got to sure. own this domain and own that domain. And there grew up this entire industry, which, by the way, still exists. But their message was, oh, you just need a descriptive phrase because that's good for search engine ranking. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I just need a, a domain name that describes what I do. What's you know what, who's the um, best lawyer.com? <laughs> who, what? Who's the best lawyer.com? Exactly, exactly. Or you know, the best whatever.com mm-hmm. or and so but my response to that was always, yeah, but that's really a short-sighted approach. And actually clients would argue with me because that was the messaging that was coming out in the early days of the internet. And that's what they were exposed to when they would go to set things up. And I'm like, yeah, but no matter what you say, when you really get down to it, let's look at what's broken through on the internet early on and became a brand. They were not descriptive domain names. They were names like Google. They were names like, you know, um, you know, Expedia. They were, you know, just go back through and think of company Amazon, right? You know, yeah. Amazon wasn't sold books. They weren't, they weren't describing the world. They weren't saying we're the world's best bookseller.com. Right. right? I, if, uh, if you look at some of the brands that, uh, that were in that sort of phase, they, they had the .com attached to the brand name. And I always found that rather ludicrous to have a brand name that was .com. It was almost like, well, that's you're not you're you're not anticipating the fact that the internet will be everything, and that what's on the internet is on the outside, is on the inside, and that they they will merge, and so you don't need to establish dot com. I, I think that's true, and I think you're. I think there's been a move away from that. I think there was some of that early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then also uh, the algorithms have changed, so that they they're sort of trying to move away from just the URL as part of the SEO and look at what content is within the site to justify, not to mention the fact that people will be clicking on things differently rather than just on the URL. They might be clicking on it because the content is superior and that gives it more favorability in in the algorithm uh, that Google gives. That's true. Um, And I want to add something that you're asking about why is is a brand more important or it's actually more important than ever because what I deal with, regularly for clients now is the threats or the issues that come up that can impact their brand equity or their brand assets online and you can call it your trademarks, whatever label you want to put on it is are things that did not exist 20 years ago and that clients and businesses still don't even understand or recognize Mm -hmm. and here's a few that i will i'll just not i'm not going to get technical but i'll just give you a couple of simple little examples okay um you know 
the threat now is not that somebody's going to go um, necessarily knock off your product, although there's lots of that from China, right? Mm-hmm. You counterfeit goods. Oh, well, and actually, that's been made easier now because counterfeit goods can just be posted on the internet and sold via Amazon or via eBay or via Alibaba. Right. You know, well, Alibaba is the, the greatest platform in the world for fake goods. Right, naturally. But then, but then there's more subtle things like infringing domain names. If And this is where clients do have huge problems. Not all of them, but it's a big business where – you know, a client will have a trademark and their brand name, and it's registered and it's protected, but they end up with someone who takes that trademark or brand name and puts it into a different URL and uses it to divert traffic. Mm-hmm. It's called initial interest confusion, and there are very sophisticated things that go on, like there's one thing called typo squatting, where they literally right. de- deliberately create misspellings of brand names and just based on sheer volume, they, when people mistype, the traffic gets diverted. And it's, it's staggering to me that those, that those kinds of things exist. And about three or four years ago now, I I happened to catch this. There was actually a case in the federal court in Los Angeles where uh, Facebook actually brought a case against one company that had something like over 800 Typo squatting versions of the word Facebook. F A C B O O K F A S E B O. Well, those aren't typos exactly, but just maybe misspellings too. Yeah, and then the uh, probably the thing that's been the most egregious, in my opinion, is which has been let go. It's been a very big challenge, and there's been a lot of cases on it, a lot of lawsuits, but very few people. Have, no one's ever been able to sustain it all the way to the fruit of the end, which is this issue of auctioning off brand names in as AdWords in Google. All right. Um, because mm-hmm. Google, I mean, I don't know if most people realize this, but the, the Google AdWords system is a live auction. You're bidding in real time against anybody else who's willing to pay more for that whatever term that you're paying to, for click-throughs on, right? Even if that term and, is another brand. Yeah, well, here's, here's, here's the, like, what I call the dirty little secret behind that is if you owned mindset and um, you decide you want to do a Google AdWords campaign on that and you're purchasing, you might be paying a bit of, I don't know, a dollar to whatever for your own trademark. Mm-hmm. Say you're doing a marketing campaign and you want to, or a live event, something, doesn't matter. And I decide as your competitor that I want to bid on mindset to advertise my own product or mm-hmm. service, mm-hmm. right? Um, it does two things. One, I'm competing against you, but I'm also for- forcing you to pay Google more money right. to use your own trademark to advertise with. It's it's a competitive bidding system. So it works quite well for Google because it drives up the cost of, of bidding. And, of course, in generic names and words, it's not a problem. But there's been lawsuits by American Airlines. There's been lawsuits. If you think about a company that their entire business nowadays is online, travel being a great example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if suddenly they're having to pay $10 per click to use their own name as opposed because all these other companies are, you know, using American Airlines to divert 
traffic to another site. So there's some very sophisticated threats out there. And, you know, the smaller companies actually a lot of times do have problems. Actually, here's a great example. I went on Amazon the other day, and there is a brand of pet food that my dog, I sell, uh, give my dog. And they are not this small brand, very high quality product. They're not selling online. But their trade, their name is being completely cannibalized mm. all over Amazon mm. and in the pet industry. And the, all these other competitors are using the name to market their pet food. So, and I'm sure that company isn't even aware of it. Yeah. So I, I wanted to circle in on something, which is uh, for lawyers. And, you know, let's say that marketers and lawyers and used car salespeople, uh, so I'm, I'm in the second category, just to be clear. are are not the most trusted of individuals and uh you know as far or institutions as far as surveys are concerned and and therefore when we're creating a brand because of course you know i live in eat brand uh, and would never uh, think anything other than the fact that brand is important much less uh today but when you're coming with an a priori that most people have about our field, in your case, the legal field, how does that change or how do you, how do you actually compensate and try and make reinvigorate trust in your brand, whatever brand you decide to use for your legal company? Uh, how do I reinvigorate or create it? Well, I, mean, I suppose both. let's hope there was some at the beginning. Um, but yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, you're right. In, you know, create. I, you know, you, I think I think you have to back up, and and this is a little bit broader response, but I think it will get to the answer, which is, and I think you did before we got on, were asking me a question, which I thought about, which is, um, I mean, what is the role of brand today in today's topsy turvy world and building trust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and. I think you have to go back to distinguishing what a brand really is about. And I think that's actually one of my passions is having that conversation because I think none of them are wrong, but they're usually the conversations are somewhat incomplete because they're coming from the perspective of whether you're the marketer, whether you're the creator of the brand, whether you're the lawyer who's protecting the brand, whether you're involved with valuing the brand. I mean, there's so many different people who come into the brand conversation as, as professionals. So they have a different perspective on what a brand is. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's probably a combination of a lot of different things. Right. Uh, but to me, go back to the basics of, you know, first it was identity before the internet. Let's go back to the dark, not the dark ages, but certainly the middle ages. I mean, the first recorded instances of anything to do with brands go back to, you know, Roman times and, quite frankly, Middle Ages in England, you know, when a a fabric manufacturer or a garment manufacturer, you know, would get knocked off and he had to mark his goods so that you know who who it came from. So it's one of identity. And people tend to gloss over that now because we've jumped into a lot more sophisticated discussions, which I champion and I'm part of. But I think stick with that first identity function to begin with. It really, in a very fundamental level, is it's a means of telling one person's products and services from another. And, you know, fake goods are not new to the Internet. 
people have been imitating each other and knocking each other off since apparently since the beginning. And so people who create, and I call them creators, creators need a means of protecting their identity, okay, for what they do. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the identity function. But then it's evolved much more, and that's actually, I think, is what made it so important, is connection. Because that establishing that connection to the consumer, um, modern-day brandings, it's a much more expanded concept now. Right, um, because of actually, the different things you can become, do on your, online. Yeah, well, and also we've, we hear this, like, there's also becomes almost a personification of a brand, you know, um, because it's a need, it comes out of the desire to effectively stand out above the noise and deafening din of information that we're all exposed to. Right, so, so what's, if, if you, sorry, if you, if you look at the legal practice where a lawyer is by definition an individual, a personality, how do you, how, what kind of advice or thoughts do you have about trying to create a trustworthy, consistent image identity uh, between your brand and the individual? I know that that's a tough one because that gets into what we call an area of personal branding. And to be honest, I've struggled with that concept for a long time, even within my own practice, because when you're a professional, doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, doesn't matter whether you're a a lawyer, you know, you're an individual, right? And you can be in a firm, but ultimately the relationship that's provided is with the individual. Right. Okay. Um, So, it's usually not and you and marketing yourself or branding yourself as the better lawyer or the best doctor that's not an effective distinguent distinction right. it's just a label you've you've attributed to yourself right exactly and it's so the people who have tended to become personal brands um, are it's some other attribute about them that gets um Oh, I, you know, Johnny Cochran, I don't know, being from Europe, if you remember him, he was the attorney who did the O.J. Simpson case. Oh, yes. And he had a, a defining moment for him was when he had the, the thing the about glove. the glove yeah. in the trial, whether it fit, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that became his brand in some respects as an attorney. Um, and, you know, I think that becomes sort of often a disconnect from the reality of who the person is as an individual. Um, so I think personal branding is something that individuals struggle with. Now, on the Internet, I think it's very interesting because I've looked at, at the notion of personal branding. Um, and, you know, one of my favorites in the States is uh, this guy, Jim Cramer, who had he's a Wall Street guy on CNBC mm-hmm. and brilliant man. He was the uh, uh he was the editor of the Harvard Law Review, practiced law, and was a very big, ran a very big company on Wall Street. And now he's a journalist. He's been a journalist now for 10 or 15 years. And he has a, street, a, a site called thestreet.com with dozens of experts in financial. And uh, he created this TV show where he created this persona of, you know, he's the guy that is there for the little investor. He's not part of Wall Street. He's there to teach the little guy the truth and give level the playing field for them. And, you know, he's a huge, huge personal brand now, I think. Um, so 
there's lots of examples of those that have broken through on the internet. And certainly social media has become a platform for that. So in, in, if you look at the, uh, so this issue, you and I, and I were just talking about this beforehand, how lawyers tend to uh, label themselves by their last names. So I, I, I worked at Deckard Price and Rhodes in Philadelphia. My mom worked at Montgomery McCracken, Walker and Rhodes. <laughs> and and that, you know, it seems like all these law firms uh, or so many companies, whether it's a law or others, as they start up, will just default back to my last name or you know me as the brand name. How do you how do you see that evolving, or what kind of advice do you provide to your entrepreneurs, whether I guess they're still in the music business or or lawyers or whomever? Uh, what do you mean as to whether they have an individual name or, or something that's more distinctive? Right, so that's as an individual name. So if you're, a person. yeah, if your last name is um, Weirdo, weirdo, crazy man. This is maybe not a common last name, uh, but if your name is, let's say, Johnson, <laughs> you're in deep doo doo. So <laughs> that's true, right? So you know, I, I've, I've, I feel like I was privileged by by being named something a little bit peculiar, Minter Dial. So that's not exactly a name that many other people are going to want to jump on. It doesn't mean anything other than it's a representation of my personality. So there would be possibly a good idea there. But otherwise, how do you what's how do you structure the conversation with your clients as they're thinking about creating a brand? Well, I think quite frankly, most people come in with a pretty good idea of who they are. Um, at least by the time I see them, uh, what I tend to deal with on a day-to-day basis is less individuals who are branding themselves and more companies or individuals who are launching businesses and have a product or service. And the conversation there usually ends up being an issue, which I think is really critical foundational mistake that companies make is their selection process is not guided in any way. And they end up choosing a name that is not something that is protectable. So they probably should stick with something like their personal name as opposed to trying to brand something with a made-up name that's not very artfully done. And mm-hmm. when I say artfully, I mean it's not done in a way in which they've either gotten the information or have any awareness around whether it can be legally protected. Um, the biggest mistake people make, I find, is they want to describe what they do. The inexperienced or the young entrepreneur or the young startup by far the biggest mistake is they come in and they say, well, I'm, I'm want to use this and they want to use like, a, I mean, I'm going to make this up, but, uh, you know, it'll be something that has the current fashion, you know, a few, 10 years ago, it was the word natural. Then it could be the word, you know, uh, disruptive. I'm just making things up. Any kind of words or terms that, or that are kind of either in common parlance or parlance are used within an industry. The minute you start using those to identify your brand, that's not going to work. Right, because then it's, then the risk is we're being trendy as opposed to being thinking long term. Well, um, I, my distinction on that, and that's true, but I think it's for me it's less about being trendy than it is, you know, if. Go back to the question of what a brand is about. A brand is dis- A brand is about distinction, right? A brand is about being able to distinguish yourself in a meaningful way, be it a person or a product, from your competitors so that you stand out in the marketplace as, oh, I see this brand 
and I understand what it is, what they sell, and who they are. If not immediately, over time and exposure, you come to identify that brand name with a particular product or service. But if you have a name that is weak and diluted and there are 100 people or 50 people in the marketplace using either something identical or something that's sort of close, you know, or has a portion, a same prefix or the same suffix, then you're just adding this extra layer of, of problem in order to um, – Distinguish yourself. I'll tell you a quick one. This is about seven or eight years old now, but it is my favorite brand rebrand story ever. <laughs> and I love it. Um, is I don't think they're as big in Europe because I know they pulled out of Europe, but have you heard of the brand Aflac, the insurance company? No. Okay. Actually, it's a brilliant, brilliant brand story. And I think it makes the point a better than anything I've ever seen. I stumbled across, across this in Harvard, Law, uh, Harvard Business Review a few years back. Aflac is a boring, was a boring insurance company, and it's, it was an acronym. The Aflac was an acronym for the American Federated Life Assurance Company. <laughs> now, can you think of a more boring, descriptive nope, name? Nope, nope. That's, right. That's up there. And the company had been in business for years, and they had spent millions of dollars around the world in marketing and advertising to very little effect. And it turns out, and you probably know more about this than me, but when they, they would test their commercials, they would come back with like a nine share, be very low, right, of mm-hmm. any kind of recognition or you know, consumer identification with what, what they were about after they would run these commercials. So somewhere along the way, they got a new CEO, and he closed, which is probably why you guys aren't exposed to it. They closed underperforming markets, which was actually Europe, I think. Mm -hmm. And he diverted some of the funds into rebranding the company. And he had what was called a creative shootout with a couple of big agencies in New York. And they tested two concepts. And one involved a very famous uh, television comedy actor here in the States on a show – show from, I think it was called Light Home Improvement, very popular uh, actor at the time. And then they came up with this idea of this agency about the word, the duck. Someone literally walked in the agency. They were trying to think of something, and a guy goes, wow, Aflac, Aflac, sounds like a freaking duck. So they pitched this idea, and they tested these two commercials, and the duck concept went through the roof. I mean, like three times the share of, of testing, better testing than the individual com- well-known comic. So they went with it at great risk, and the staggering results are what make the case. In less than three years, they went to a huge, huge market share in um, Japan, became the number one insurance company in all of Japan. The Duck has live events. He has hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers, okay? Mm-hmm. This duck, they still, to this day, run TV commercials with the Aflac duck. Well, so and what's the, um, how, how do we learn from that? Do we, do we but what we learn is, is that, you know, even when you're describing, it goes back to what I was saying, it's selecting something that you can protect and that can be, make you stand out from the crowd. If I'm walking around saying I'm the American Federated Life Insurance Company, 
how many people are going to remember that? Yeah. But if I create a distinctive name, and in this case, the distinctive brand messenger, which was the duck, mm-hmm. and I the public identifies that with that messenger and as with as being part of my product or service, you know, it becomes a great tool for well, so you, standing you, out. Right, what you mentioned right in the middle of that was at great risk, and so. You know, a at lawyers and risk that you don't like that, but the the notion of going for something different kind of implies taking some risk. That's probably true. Um, I mean, I don't think the concept when you're, you're you're referencing attorneys personally, I don't think attorneys think about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think lawyers are the most professionals. I think it's changed. I think um, about as far as the professional world has gotten in branding is is rather than having five names five last names um of partner one two three and four and five in the name they've dropped it down to just one so it's a single name that has to be marketed and remembered um still you still probably have to manage the egos in that process because you know these well i think that's what it's all about partner for 50 years and i want my name you know, if, well, that's exactly it. That's the whole. That's the whole dilemma. That's where it all came from to begin with. Yeah. Is I'm not just a partner. I'm a named partner. Yeah. You see, those are the, that's the pecking order in the traditions of law prep firms, mm. right? You start out as an associate, then you might be a non-equity partner, then you might become an equity partner, and if you stay around long enough, you might be a founding, you know, a name partner. So I, I want to get into a brand aid summit in a second, but. Do you have any sites or apps, I suppose, that you use uh, or like go-to apps or sites for your trademark searches? I mean, other than just Google. Do you have Um, any sites you can recommend to us? uh, Well, that's a very interesting question because um, it's not a – it can get somewhat expensive, but it also can be very important. Um, It's not – Super costly, but it's just the reality. Uh, you can look at the U.S. Trademark Office or any or even in Europe, the EUTM. It's now called the European Union Trademark Office. And there's a huge database of all brands and trademarks registered. It's anyone in the public can access those databases. Um, so uh, you can just type in EU trademark search, and I think it would come up, the database for EU. Uh, so... That part at one level is fairly easy. The challenge is in the in the U.S. in particular, it's very difficult to actually be certain because there's so many places you need to search, and there are companies that are paid professionals who do that. We as attorneys tend to use third-party companies who can do a thorough search, which includes all 50 states, because in the United States we actually have 50-state databases of people who register state trademarks. Mm-hmm. Then you have the internet, then you have domain names, then you have, um, you know, common law trade directories. So that it becomes a, a challenge to make sure you're at, and it, and it's one thing if you're a small entrepreneur and you're just changing, you're having a service and it turns out you have a conflict that is not as difficult to change your name or make a shift if something comes up. But if you're launching a product or service and you're manufacturing something, it's not really a wise investment of your time or money to start marketing a product without clearing the name before you do. Yeah. I think it's a fundamental investment that needs to be made to protect the investments that come after. Um, so that's important. Uh, but I think you also, um, 
one point, if we have enough time, we're going to mention a little bit about, because that leads into some of the other elements that I'm real passionate about um, on this whole notion of how do you protect something and build it, um, is, is that that searching, or I call it the investigating. I've come up with a little acronym. I call it the Insure Brand Protect Sequence, and it's the six steps to actually having something that's a value from a protection standpoint. And that is, I start with that investigation, and then you have to navigate it. You know, you have to navigate what's in it and what the landscape is. And that's not necessarily to avoid being sued. It's also a positive thing to create a market and know where you can expand. It gives you a roadmap. Mm-hmm. How big of a sandbox can you play in, which is the way I like to put it. Um, then you make your selection based upon what you can protect. Yes, yeah, you work with someone like you and you're going to come up with the great, you know, the great ideas for what the brand name can be. But then that has to be filtered through what is in that marketplace, whether we can protect it, <clears throat> is it available, and is it protectable mm-hmm. based on this descriptiveness thing. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I mention that is so many companies, even well-funded companies who are not necessarily Fortune 500s who are moving along, they tend to want to jump directly to what is the fifth step, which is registration. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. That is the fifth step. It's not the first. Mm -hmm. Because if you skip one of those first uh, four, that's where the problems show up. That's, that's how you will end up later on having a problem. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, and I use the acronym for insure, is the enforcement. And I think that's probably the most important thing is mm-hmm. people – and you can't protect a name and then forget about it. It is an ongoing thing. It doesn't mean it's a full-time job. It just means there has to be a consciousness about the brand both on the protection side, obviously, and as well as on the – the marketing and messaging side, you know, that's very good. I really, I enjoy that. One of the sites that I've used in my time is name check, which is just a a quick and easy way to look online for what's available in terms of URLs around certain themes. And I, I get the feeling that a lot of companies will also start by nowadays, especially the younger ones will just start by, well, what's available in, in terms of online. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, I mean, that can be okay if it, you know, if, if, and it can be enough, but, um, you know, there are companies that have had problems, you know, when they sure. go to Europe and, you know, they didn't check it out before well, they, yeah, or they ma- waited too long to, yeah, not to, to mention to- the fact that you have some words that don't translate well. Um, so let's let, we just have a couple minutes uh, left on talking about your upcoming summit. Brand Aid, which is obviously uh, a, a continuation of your company, Brand Aid. So tell us uh, what is going on and, uh, and what, who, how do we sign up for it? Okay. Well, um, I am putting together, we've put together a brand uh, virtual summit, and we're going to have uh, a, a roster of some great experts in different aspects of branding. And it's not just about creating the logo or the visual identities. It's a much broader conversation than that. It's a free series. Um, it's going to launch on April 10th. And uh, I, I, I think one of my guests is going to be <clears throat> Mentor Dial. There you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about uh, expanding our discussion into some of the more deep dive issues on some of these issues of uh, 
you know, connecting with the consumer. Um, that's one of my passions is really it's about the vision that you have, whether it's for your personal brand or for your business or your product. And how do you get that out into the world in a consistent way that makes the impact we've been talking about? Um, so uh, we have a sign up for that. And it um, I'll be happy to provide you the link if you want to share it with your sure listeners you yeah, yeah, um, yeah. for a free sign up. Yep. Um, and uh, you just channel. receive one great video a day for a couple of weeks with great interviews from different people, and uh, hopefully it will enrich your listeners or the listeners' uh, experience of understanding about this whole world of, of brand. Brilliant. All right, well, Cheryl, so how can someone get in touch with you? What's the best way to connect with you personally? Oh, good question. Uh, probably the best way is through my uh law firm site at this point, Hodgson Legal. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Cheryl at HodgsonLegal.com is my, is my email. And also uh, my site, I have a tremendous amount of content that I've been blogging for almost 10 years under Brandade.com and it's B-R-A-N-D-A-I-D-E.com. Uh, and that offers uh, both protection services as well as rich content on brand protection. And it's for owners and entrepreneurs to access fundamental concepts and information surrounding what they need to do to select a great name, protect it, and to make sure they get on the right path. Um, That's really my big thing is I I like to say you need to walk into the room and turn on the lights before you go into a room. Turn on the lights before you walk into a room to see what furniture you might stumble over. So that's really kind of a, a, a metaphor for learning some fundamental things so you get off on the right path and then make wise, more mindful decisions. And, um, that's it. Beautiful. And, and I, yeah. Cheryl, and I, go for it. Last thing, go for it. Sorry. Oh uh, yeah. You mentioned, I wanted to just share one quick thing. Cause you mentioned something to me, um, about, uh, you ask one question. I just throw this in about sustaining a brand, you mm-hmm. know, creating a sustainable brand. Um, I think, one of there's two big things about that. I thought about it, and I just wanted to throw out three points I wanted to make. One is, uh, what is your product or service? It's got to be unique, and it's got to be relevant. It's people talk about, well, I have to have a, something that's different. Yes, you have to be different, but it's not enough to be different. Your product or service must rel- be relevant to the consumer. So figure out how it matters and how it will change and impact their life, and what it's going to do for them is what. <clears throat> is important not to jump over mm-hmm. in your in your communications. And then second is your culture, your company culture in terms of sustaining a brand. The experience we have of a brand is the people we encounter. It's how we're treated by the customer service person and at the airline counter. It's how we're treated on the phone. Um, it's, you know, what is our experience? Is the product any good? Those are the elements that go into fi- be developing a brand and they have to be, it has to be continuous in order to sustain it. And then there's one last comment, which is, which is, you see, the innovation. And I heard, I read something a few years ago that I heard recently, actually, that something like 60% of the companies, the Fortune 500 companies that are on the U.S. stock market today will never, won't even be around right. in the next 30 years. Mm. Because, next 10 years. you know, Okay. They, they became extinct. I mean, look what happened with Kodak. That's mm-hmm. the best example of all. A company that could not innovate mm-hmm. fast enough to embrace the digital revolution. And they're gone. Mm. They don't exist anymore. 
So and Steve Jobs once said, and I love this, even great brands need some care and attention. Yeah. So it's a constant effort to maintain and, and that connection to the consumer in a, in a new and meaningful way. And just to take you up on that last point, innovation. In France, uh, a friend of mine did a survey of the values of the top companies. And somewhere along the lines of 50-55% of the top companies in France have the word innovation as one of the top three values. So the challenge I see is maybe not thinking about it, but actually executing against it. Because if everyone is thinking, well, we need to innovate, well, then at the end of the day, it's a, almost a level playing field as far as that's concerned. Uh, that, in that everyone thinks they need to innovate, but the ones that do survive are the ones that know how to execute against that value. That's absolutely true. because, And that's true of the brand, too. You know, Have you had this experience? I mean, it's it's an extension of the, the fundamental issue of it's great to have brand messaging, to have a grand, great visuals, but how does that get, how do you get buy-in within the company right. and the, the culture to make sure that goes from the creation stage into the experience of the consumer on a consistent basis? And the need to innovate, I don't think, is necessarily for the world. It's against your own to some extent, I would think it's against your own product or service, so you continue to provide something that's that's relevant and meaningful. Mm. And, and I mean, the change, we all have to innovate in our own lives, don't we? Yes, we do. You and, know, and every I mean, seven years. Who, who thought we would have been on a, a podcast with me in California and you are in... Austin, Texas today. Austin, Texas, yeah. with the power of technology, and here we are having a conversation that wouldn't have even been thought of a few short years ago. And no doubt. it's where will we be 10 years from now? You know, so Keep I up. think that's what the process of innovation is always about is looking ahead. All right. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for getting up so early over in California. Enjoy your lovely day. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, we'll be getting back in touch shortly on Brand Day. Thank Brand you so Day. much and have a great trip to South by Southwest. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray.
colors blend and look ugly in the end. But they're pretty in their own disgusting values. We'd hang our portraits in the hallways, make our house guests cringe. Oh, I wouldn't care about the Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.